<clears throat> so tonight's talk uh, is entitled Shifting Identities. Uh, and it's, I hope it to tie it together to last week's talk. And to begin this talk, I'll sort of, of uh, paraphrase the last one so that you can see the dovetail between the two, hopefully. <clears throat> but I also want to uh, start with saying that, you know, the further out I go, for some of you, the distance between what I'm saying and your own experience may be a large. Uh, there's two things. One is that I hope to show you uh, sort of the direction the practice takes. So there's the information that I think is important to learn just on its own merit. And then there is the realized experience of what I'm saying. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can stay within proximity of each other so that you can feel that persuasion also within your own experience. But if it gets too distant, or if you don't want to follow because for various reasons, then just stay in your practice. And it's like, uh, you know, somebody's throwing a rock that's over your head and you're just going, wow, he tossed that one pretty far. It's pretty, that's amazing, you know. What he's saying is, I can, I can feel the amazement. That's good enough. <laughs> that's good enough. You, if you, if you, the, the first uh, Dharma talk I went to was um, by Suzaki Roshi in the early 70s. Um, and I didn't understand a word he said, but I knew there was some amazement there. And so it led me to try to uncover what was amazing about it. And uh, sometimes... Dharma talks have that effect. So in one way or another, I hope we kind of pull each other forward. Okay. So uh, last talk I gave was on how the ego is essential in the differentiation of the world of form. Uh, you know, the mind starts out uh, without any configuration whatsoever. It's the birth of a newborn doesn't have any information there that's uh, available to it. And so somehow, some ways, it starts learning uh, to form its neurological pathways that lead to information and lead to designation. And I'm sure the first one has something to do with mother and myself and food. And from that, it just sort of spreads out. Uh, and it grows in maturity, psychological maturity, as, it as the world is informed by its need to differentiate. And the more it differentiates, the wealthier, in quotes, it becomes. And the more central focused it also becomes, because... It, once it realizes at some point that all the senses are coming into it. That it's uh, like the vortex of the, of the triangle. And so all the information that the world contains is flowing into it. And all the thoughts are coming from it. And all of the emotions are coming from it. And so for it to decide that it's a central, has a central role to play in life is just a matter of seeing where all the information is coming into. So that, that becomes an egoic stance. And as the information comes in and as it's pondered upon and elaborated upon through 
memory and experience, <clears throat> it grows in the wealth of its own knowledge. Uh, which is fine because it needs to differentiate the world in order to manipulate it. That's its real purpose. The problem is it doesn't know when to stop. It doesn't have any knowledge of what its true origins are or what its function is. And so it applies its own functionality, given the fact that it's central to everything that life has to say is all coming into it. It must be the lead casting role. And so um, it builds itself out of, out of its own self-proliferation, out of its own ponderance, and decides that it's very important or very shameful. doesn't really matter what direction it goes, because either way it's equally as well-formed, either in negative emotion or in positive emotion. But the point is, is that it grows in self-importance. <clears throat> At some point the self-importance rubs up against the rest of the world. All the other things he's created. (laughs) So, something in us, awareness in us, decides that there's something wrong that doesn't seem to be fixable from the therapies that I take or the workshops I attend. And that there must be some central way that this mind is sort of out of control. So I take up a spiritual practice. And the spiritual practice, point of reference, is identity. Now let us be clear that the spiritual journey is around identity. All true projections of any genuine spiritual tradition has to do with the exploration of identity. I mean, what else are you going to explore? And so as that understanding takes forth, comes forth, and we start using the spiritual tradition of awareness, mindfulness, being able to see oneself, <clears throat> we surmise that we're not as important as we once talk, took ourselves to be. It takes a while for that, to, that insight to dawn on us, but we see, well, you know, I see what I'm not now. I see I'm not the thoughts. I see I'm not the emotions. I, I see that I've taken myself not only to be more self-important than I am, but also the composite of what I thought I was, I'm really not. And this deflates the ego. Now, the ego can become reinflated by the information it now has and become a spiritual adept. So it can rise in the chair and become profound and wise and, you know, have followers and all of that. And that's the egoic side of the spiritual journey. Or it can take its true position, which is wonderment, really. What's, what is it? And, and share the wonderment of the spiritual journey uh, as well. <clears throat> now, What also needs to be understood is that the ego grew proportionate to the information it imparted onto the world, right? So the the experiences it had, each object becomes laced 
with that experience. Oh, I've sat in that chair before and it hurt my back. I've got to find another chair. Whatever it is, or it can be in a single subject like a college professor or something, which just deepens and deepens and enriches and never ends in its uh, form of exploration. And, and, but it doesn't matter because the ego thrives, thrives upon that intellectual knowledge. That's its realm of control. And so it, its proportionality is dependent upon how many things, what it knows in, in life, how much information it has gathered about life and how much it has imparted to the objects of the world through its projection. And that's in its storage bank. And that gives it a sense of, <clears throat> of longevity, of three-dimensionality, of of specialness, of prejudice, of opinion. All of that is the hardened sense of egoic content. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> it's interesting because Buddhism is very much about divesting the energy we place in form from form. Now, why would Buddhism be interested in that? Because in the same way that the ego grows by investing more energy or pleasure into form, it deflates by the opposite. That if it, the form doesn't mean as much as it once mean, I don't mean as much as I once me meant, and I become smaller in importance. Not, I just become smaller as a as a noise. <laughs> That's all I ever was, by the way. <laughs> See, what, why information, we're not we're talking about an entity here, we're talking about noise. So the more information, the more noise. The less information, the less noise, and the less me. It's really important to, to get this, um, this uh, equation right. So uh, why does Buddhism spend so much of its time looking at the objects of the world and divesting worth and value from those objects? You see why? Because it quiets me. It makes me proportional to where I'm supposed to be, which is in the distinction of one door from window, so I can get out the door and open the window. And not... I built that window, and that was one of my best projects, and I'm an artist, and it's not that. It's just, right? So it's, it tries to get you back into your proper alignment with what the mind is supposed to do. <clears throat> now, how does it divest energy from the objects? It shows you that the energy that we have placed on the objects is not in the object. Did you know the cherry pie was not... In the cherry pie, it's in your repetitious memory of loving cherry pie. And you place that image and the desire for it and the feeling about it onto that cherry pie and then want more of it when it is completely neutral of all of that. And if you knew that, if you know that deeply enough, it's like, why do I want to invest in that? And why do I want to invest in that? And What's the point, you know? What's the point in just 
creating my own heaven and hells in the world, which is what we do. And it also shows you, because form is mind-created, it's impermanent. Because nothing of the mind can sustain itself. How long can a thought last? That's why it's impermanent. Not because there's something intrinsic in it that makes it impermanent, because it's mind-formed and therefore impermanent. Let us be careful. Let us be knowledgeable of one thing. Impermanence is not the truth of reality. I'm going to stop there, and you can, inside of you, can go, wait till I get, okay? So now I'm going to follow it with the next sentence. Impermanence is the truth of formed reality. Impermanence is the truth of what the mind has created. Not the truth of reality itself. If there was just impermanence, there would be no ground of being. There would be no, there would be no, there wouldn't be an unconditioned. So the conditioned is temporary because it's conditioned. See? Okay. If you're with me so far, we can move further. Okay. Now, okay, so I'm going to give you, we're talking about the trajectory of the spiritual journey. It's to go from the form, the formed world, to the formless. Now, that's not so obvious in the Theravadan tradition. And it really wasn't until I explored other traditions that the, that it, the path was understood as completely as I understand it now. Because there's the formed and the formless. Now, let me give you, let me give you an exercise in which we can come together on that, on that truth. So I'd like you to each ask yourself, what is seeing out of your eyes? What is seeing out of your eyes? Now, if you ask that question, what you'll notice is I'm not saying is what is being seen out of your eyes, because that's the forms of the world. I'm asked, what is seeing those forms? And I don't mean who is seeing it. I mean what. I mean the awareness itself that sees. Now, okay, so what? now we see the trajectory of the spiritual journey. The spiritual journey is to go from what we normally look to when we see. We look to the forms of the world. We look at the expressions, the appearances. And we've learned to invest our own memories into those into that those expressions of form. We bypass the seeing is irrelevant. Who cares about it? We care about the form. We care about the food, the cherry pie, the cookie, the corn chowder. So the seeing is useless to us. It's useless to us as long as there is me wanting that. 
because I'm not interested in any of the in-between. That's for textbooks or something. But when the forms that I'm investing in become less important, the seeing becomes more important. Because there's only two things happening. There's the seeing and the seeing. And if the seeing isn't as enticing to me as it once was, then the seeing, the awareness itself, becomes much more important. And so as the objects of the world decrease in importance, the seeing, the awareness, increases in importance. It's like the conservation of energy. It's got to go somewhere. And if it's out of the form, it's into the formless. Now what happens when we really relish the sense of seeing rather than what is seen? Our paradigm shifts completely. Because when the forms are not so important, when they don't hold a model uh, and pathway for our life, when they're not the gods of our life, then the seeing takes on its own reference, takes its own paradigm. And it's not the pursuit of pleasure because the seeing doesn't hold that. And it's not the building of one's egoic nature because the seeing doesn't hold that. The seeing holds inclusivity. The seeing holds aliveness. And the liveness was passed up for the mechanics of the acquisition before, when I was interested in form. Okay, let me stop and see if you're with me. Okay. I see some of you nodding and some of you not nodding. And Okay. I will take that as a... Okay. This is really important. It's interesting to me. I hope I can make that interesting to you. So you take a, a simple question like, what is seeing out of my eyes? And you go, wait, oh, I don't even care about that. Well, that says a lot. Because the path of, of spirituality is to go from the forms, an investment into the form, to the formless, which is the seeing itself. Because the seeing itself holds awareness. It holds life. It holds existence. The form doesn't hold existence. The form holds what I said it is. And we keep squeezing that I said it is out of it. Trying to milk. I knew it was good. Boy, I knew it was good. I knew it was good. But it could be better. But I knew it's good. You know, it's like... (laughs) like a little engine that knew it could. (laughs) From form fixation, from form fixation to awareness. Now some of you in your interviews today said, you're using different words. Why don't you just use the old words? Because I don't do that. There's a deliberate reason I don't do that. Because if I use the old words, they've already imprinted in you their own script. And you would just be hearing your own script being repetitive, no matter what I said differently. 
If I use different words, you have to come into a different area of yourself to discover what those words mean. And that shift could provide just enough creativity and insight to allow you to shift out of the old patterned way of thinking. That's why I do it. Okay. Now, we're beginning to see how the spiritual journey is a shift out of identity. It's identity that locks us into form because form itself is the reflection of all the objects of the world. The sense of I reflects its own meaning upon the world. And unless we understand how that happens, how that occurs, it's just going to keep doing it. And if you stay within the mechanics of the, if the mechanics of the practice, the mechanics are just repetitious displays of form. They don't get you out of form. They just get you a different pathway into form. You can change what you like to what you don't like, or what you don't like to what you like. And you can open your heart more because that's a neurological pathway too. And all the things that you hear about as attributes of the absolute formlessness, like patience, you can practice within your formed reality. I can try patience. I know what it means. It means waiting, right? No, it doesn't mean waiting. It means waiting to the brain. It doesn't mean waiting to the heart. Patience to the heart is everlasting presence. Patience to the brain is tapping your fingers until this is over. And that's the, that's the shift, you see? You think you're doing what is the spiritual righteous way to do it, and often it's just the repetitious mechanical way that the mind has interpreted that. Because it interprets everything, it'll interpret the spiritual for you. Love. Oh, I know love. I have a lot of loved ones. Until they do something that cast them out. But that's awareness never does that. Never casts you out. Never. You see, this when we're talking about formlessness, we're talking about the everlasting. We're talking about infinity. We're talking about inclusion and even the word seems to indicate something's excluded, but there's nothing excluded in this word. That's what we're talking about. But for the little sense of me to get a sense that it's going in that direction rather than the mechanical direction that it has been using in its meditation scares it. It's all very... I set it all up at 7 o'clock in the morning and I'm at my cushion. At 8, I'm at work. On the day goes. And then once a year, I do a, a week long. And 30 years later, at 7 a.m., I'm sitting and I'm looking forward to the week long. And I'm wondering why it's taking so darn long to move myself forward in this. Does this sound familiar? Because we have decided to stay within the mechanics. 
That's not where the spiritual journey goes. It goes into the deepest, most existential questions we could ever ask and ponder. The nature of life itself. What's really interesting to me is how we get so fooled by it all. It's not that... I mean, you, you start, start looking, it falls apart. You know, it's, it's kind of a film. It's like, I don't know, a house of cards. <clears throat> it's not built very... I mean, it's easily scrutinized. So this... Awakening is a shift of identities. Now, I'm going to take you through some shifts of identity. This is where I might lose you. But it also shows you what I mean by shifting identity and the difference between awakening and spiritual experience. Doesn't mean that insight, spiritual experience, isn't valid. It's very valid. But awakening is different. Awakening is a shift of our identity, the locus of what we take ourselves to be. It is as if you have, we have thought we were in the movie, one of the characters in the movie, and suddenly we find ourselves in the audience. It's that radical of a relocation where you realize you never were in the movie, you just thought you were. And that your true abiding was not there at all. That's what I mean by a shift of locale. A spiritual experience, which are very important to the spiritual journey, is seeing things from a quiet mind, where you recognize it free from the layered ways that our mind has projected upon it. And as you get quieter, you begin to have more insight. And more insight shows you the, the true nature, the truer nature of what life is about and what has been happening all along. And it indelibly imprints upon you ways in which thinking about it never could. So insight is very important. Now but we're talking about spiritual awakening. So let me explain, as I mentioned earlier, that the spiritual journey is from going from unconscious to conscious. <clears throat> it's waking up. So some of the areas that we deny in ourselves or postpone and don't want to look at and resist and the difficult that Narayan mentioned, and well, I'm not going to look at that because I know it's too hard, on and on. All of that is the unconscious. Well, another facet of the unconscious is who and what we are. We believe ourselves to be something based upon the, the expression of ourselves, but we don't really want to look because it might upset the apple cart. So that's unconscious. We remain unconscious, a central character formed out of the unconscious until we start looking at it. And then it starts opening up as to what it really is because we're making it conscious. Now, awakening is a process. 
<clears throat> it is a process that all of us are involved in. We're waking, waking up. Some of us faster because we're less resistant. Some of us slower because we are in more deeper states of denial. But we're all working our thresholds of denial and acceptance. Within this path, this continuum of waking up, there are moments of awakened, awakened moments, I will call them. Moments in which there is a shift of identities. And that you can't count on happening at such and such a time. It happens spontaneously, and it sometimes happens to people who aren't even on the spiritual path, but it's most likely to happen to those of us who genuinely and sincerely are moving our lives towards more conscious attention. <clears throat> so, these shifts of awakening are profound. They change everything. And I'm just going to share three of them with you, and there are many, actually. Okay, so the first one uh, is the shift, the most common one, is a shift out of the locale, the locus of me being my mind and body, into awareness itself. And when that shift happens, it is transforming. It feels like <clears throat> you have been relieved of a tremendous burden of being yourself. That you are now in the infinite. That you are formless reality itself. It, it feels wondrous. And it's conclusive. It's not questionable. You know this is the fact. In the same way you may know or think you know who you are now, it's more conclusive than that knowing that you have about yourself in this moment. It is an absolute conclusion. You see it. You know it. And you see the perspective of your old self in relationship to it. And it is truly breathtaking. And some of these experiences feel as if they're coming and going, but once you've had that shift of identity, you know that what is blocking it, what is blocking full participation in it is what has always blocked it is I'm thinking myself back into my small sense of egoic meaning. And that doesn't fool us anymore. And so the path out of the ego's contraction is obvious and straightforward. <clears throat> and for the first time in your life, you don't doubt it, if you're honest. You know exactly how you, the way to move this thing and exactly the direction you need to go. And it, it is truly an amazing, transformative experience. I don't want to underestimate it, and there's all the joy that you hear or is possible is contained within it. Love, infinite love, how about that one? I'm trying to bait you a little here. 
<laughs> Come nibble. <laughs> now, one thing that it shows you irreversibly is the mistakes we make in trying to practice form to get to the formless. Because you see that formlessness is now the sense of what you are is the formless, and you, the sense of that formless wonder, holds all of form. Holds all form. Surrounds all form. Is at the base of, it's the foundation. And form is, you might say, held within it. And to go back and practice forms to get to the formless doesn't make any sense. How could working on your form take you to that? You slipped into that. You slipped into that because you worked it somehow in the correct orientation of self-diminishment, object diminishment, and you landed there. Because that's your true landing place. And you go, oh, how'd I get here? And then you don't know how you got there, so you try to do what you did before to get there back to it, and it doesn't work. Because now you're trying to use form to get to the formless. And you, you wise up quickly because it's so important for you to get back there. There's such a... such a ignition... A yearning, yearning's the word, <clears throat> that you're not going to take no for an answer. And if it means that you have to step out of yourself again, you will. And so you do and you do. And it shows up again. And then you learn the navigational way of bringing the formless to forward. And guess what the formless is? The formless is the sacred. It holds the sacred. And we're wondering all this time, what are, where is the sacred? And staring at the pillow or our bowl of food or our Buddha image, where is the sacred? Where is the sacred? Well, you're not looking at the sacred. You're looking at form. It's never going to show you the sacred. It's just going to show you what it is. And your mind is going to show you your mind because that's generated from your mind. You look around, oh my... You could say, mind, 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 mind. Now, where's, where is there no mind? That would be a better way out of it than trying to grasp the forms for a way to, uh, uh, to transcend it. You aren't going to transcend form by climbing a ladder of form. Okay. I want to just check in. <laughs> okay, so we're only on the first shift, and we're already... Anyway, time's passing, so we've got to go to the second shift. <laughs> so, the, okay. Be quiet with me. Be still. Are you interested in this? You see? You can feel the sacred just through that interest. 
Now, there is a limitation on thinking of yourself as formless awareness because form is still arising within formless awareness and therefore there's still duality. And there's something in you that knows, heartfelt, that this world is not dualistic. And so we're not finished. And so you get even quieter because now you have the, you know the track, you know the path out of yourself. And if you're still in dualism, you're still selfing your experience. And the second shift is the shift to unity. Where there, everything is of the same essence, said the Buddha. Suchness. Where there's no differentiation between oneself and any other object in the world. It's all of the same essence. But it doesn't give you, there's no distinction. And that is another transformative, tremendously energizing revelation. And it's a deeper sense of the unity that the formless was trying to convey as well. And some people still find their way out of that unity and proclaim themselves as God. There's always an ego place out. (laughs) There's always some way that you can proclaim yourself. Now, unity is, I mean, it's, the way it arose in my experience is seeing that all things are arising simultaneously. That the moment isn't sequential. And everything is exactly of the same suchness as it's arising. And you can't, there's no desire to, or there's no, the shift is outside now of the formless that held the forms to include the forms that are within the formless. So the forms and the formless now become merged. No sense of I, no sense of self at all, no suffering. No one to suffer. Stillness beheld. Because each of these shifts are shifts out of a particular way we were perceiving into a new wonder and a deeper level of stillness and quietude. But we're not finished. Because there's still the fly of an identity that somehow knows what's happening. Even though that knowing isn't being consolidated within a mind as we have, no, as we have known it to be. 
Now this next shift, you get nothing out of. The first two shifts were spectacular. That's where all of the good stuff is. The amusement, spiritual amusement part. <laughs> it's the fun part. This next shift, why go there? Because it shifts not out of identity into a new identity. It shifts you out of identity completely. The death of identity. Now that actually happened to me first. And it can happen in any sequence. And when you're shifted completely out of any identity whatsoever, there are no objects because objects depend upon identity. And there's no subject because there's no object. And the whole thing folds into the void. And usually people go through, may go through, several of these shifts. Some people never want to. They want to stay within where they can feel the exhilaration of this new identity, which is in the formless or in unity. Because it's wondrous and transformative but it's not complete and so the only reason one would ever want to move into the loss of identity itself which is the full release the full relinquishment of any sense of identity of all identity is because it's the truth That's the only reason. Why else go there? And it comes after we've played through the playgrounds of all the other identities, really. And we spend a lot of time in this one, I'll tell you that. Never realizing we're creating and generating. And and then we get bored in it, or many of us do. And we look then, and then it opens up, and then it opens up, and then it collapses. And it collapses under our readiness to have it collapse. Because it doesn't mean anything to have any identity whatsoever. And there's a deeper form of surrender that one is willing to go through. And it is said, and I say this because I have not yet come to that place, where the old identities never come back. That one lives without identity. It's not, it's irrevocable. And so we live in the confluence of the source and ground of our being, which is the absolute, 
even as the experience of life continued to manifest forward. And there is no contradiction. None. And so this talk ends where the other one ended. Where we're at home and whatever expression of consciousness is present. Knowing that the expressions of consciousness are not the truth. The truth is what gives rise to those expressions of consciousness. And that has no identity whatsoever. And so you can play in the fields of consciousness all you want. And it's fun. And Brahmins are there for eons, if eons are something you like. (laughs) Or you can go to the truth. And it's up to us. Okay, (laughs) y'all. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for your attention. Thank you. (coughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.